Hatamari and welcome to First Up for Rapa Wednesday, the 8th of March. Coming up, the head of a Tairafati organisation trying to find homes for families displaced by the floods. Green Party co-leader James Shaw is also here to talk the country's crumbling roading network and improving our climate resilience. And engineers will this morning assess whether a major route to the Coromandel can open or if the peninsula is going to well, it's going to become an island. A lot of the businesses are just holding their breath. If you've not got any access for your staff to get through to you, you can't run a business. If you've got your staff that are able to come into work, but there's nobody visiting, then you're paying more than you're getting in. It is. Uh, good morning, everybody. Welcome to First Up. Nathan Rarity here. And because it is Wednesday, as tradition dictates in New Zealand, it is time to phone the other side of the Tasman and say, good morning, Pam Corkery, how are you? Uh, Morena, and thank you very much for maintaining the tradition. Yes, yes we do. It's very important. It's like that one they have in Pakistan and India where they march up and down the border stomping. This is the opposite of that, so this is good. So tell me this about (laughs) building building projects in Australia. The Prime Minister, uh, Anthony Albanese, has formalised a deal to build nuclear submarines there. Where where do you build a nuclear sub in Australia? Well, that's the big... um Issue really, we knew the subs were coming at some stage. Um, the expectation is Adelaide. And the rationale for that is that it was promised by the former Prime Minister Scott Morrison. I didn't think anyone was seeing that through, but that is the expectation. Now, the, this contract is the next big step in the AUKUS pact between Australia, the US and the UK. So Joe Biden and Rishi Sunak will be there with Albanese in San Diego on Monday, Tuesday, when he's going to make the announcement. This is all speculation, but from very good sources. You know, it's like everyone's reporting it, but Albanese's office isn't commenting. Mm. Now, the, the likely submarine choice for the project is expected to cost at least $100 billion. That's eight vessels for $100 billion. But the time frame's a worry. It will take ages to build the facilities in Adelaide uh, to do the work, let alone create the workforce and to build and serve on the vessels. And I was just reading a piece... Um, the people who in the States have said, look, we'll build the first two for you if you choose this Virginia class, um, they said, no way, Jose, we're, we're up the wazoo with, um, you know, submarine building. And, you know, we're looking at the earliest at getting these subs at 2000 and 2039. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, true. So I hope the war doesn't break out before then. And I've seen how fast things become obsolete. It'll be they'll be useless by that stage. Let's, let's keep it in the billions. The Perth Mint facing a recall of $9 billion worth of bullion. Why? Um, yeah. Well, the gold was off. As happens, <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was just it curdled. <laughs> the the historic Perth Mint, it's the biggest gold mint in the world. Sold the Chinese buyers what they call doped or diluted bullion back in two thousand and eighteen, and kept kept it hush. It's not secret now, courtesy of Four Corners, great investigative program here. And the mint, which is owned by the West Australian government, could face a nine billion dollar recall of gold bars. How embarrassing! Wow, 
Wow. I know, but it's poor form. Well, the gold remained above broader standards of the industry, but this 100 tons was sent to the Shanghai Gold ex- Exchange, and they said, yeah, no, that's not our purity standard. So Jason Waters, who's the new boss, he kicked in a couple of years ago. He said the issue hurts and it's bad for their reputation, but he's been busy dealing with money laundering and counterterrorism funding obligations with gold issues. Oh, my goodness me. Okay, yeah, don't be selling the dud gold. Here we go. Um, now, this is a, an interesting case. One of Australia's best-known journos facing, a def- facing defamation action. This is regarding that Brittany Higgins rape case. What can you tell us about that? Yes, or just to regroup for those who don't know, Brittany Higgins, a parliamentary worker in Canberra, she spoke at many women's protest meetings about her alleged rape in the office of a former defence minister, um, the rape by a fellow parliamentary worker, Bruce Lerman. Now, Bruce Lerman is now suing reporter, super reporter, Lisa Wilkinson, and she's denied um, she acted recklessly in reporting Higgins' allegations of rape. Um, Lerman has consistently maintained his innocence. Um, So the thing is, here's Wilkinson, who's a Network 10 star, so she'll be in the federal court doing all of that. She says that she will prove that the rape allegation is true, which is a big ask if you weren't there. Mm, mm, Exactly. Yeah, oh, well, so I'll follow that for you. I'll keep you updated. Thank you. Hey, um, you know, we've talked about Aussies building nuclear submarines uh, behaving poorly. Now apparently one of them, the former Attorney General of Australia, is going to represent a mate of Vladimir Putin's. What, what's this case about? Look, this guy's so classy. Now, um, Christian Porter, the former Attorney General, remember he quit politics after saying, yes, I'm the subject of, again, an ABC story. Oh, that guy. Yeah, that he had um, raped a girl back when she was 16, and he left Parliament over that allegation. So it's him. So he, he's, a, he's a headline grabber. So this guy, Oleg Deripaska, Deripaska, who was once believed to be Richard, Russia's richest man, he's uh, he was hit, as many were, um, oligarchs by financial sanctions and that when the Ukraine kicked in. Um, his extensive polio portfolio polio portfolio of assets <laughs> includes a stake in Queensland Illumina Refinery, which I don't do a lot with. But they're saying, you know, it's poor form of Porter who's gone from being an alleged rapist and cabinet minister back to his legal job as a lawyer that um, some are saying, oh, it's a bit rich, you're going and defending him. But he is saying, no, they're obliged to take up. They can't turn away any brief if they're in a position to take it up. And I'm a virgin who's never had a drink. I don't believe that. I was going to say, well, particularly when you've got someone who will pay a ton of money. That I just I couldn't turn him out onto the street. The poor, the, the poor, oh, the poor multi-trillionaire. Thing. Yes, yeah. I know. I just happened to have this gap. <laughs> that I pushed seven other people out the window. Like, I was going to do this youth aid case, but okay, I'll do you. Pam, Pam, thank you very much for your time this year. Pam Corkery with all the news out of Australia. It is 13 minutes past five. Um, we move to another part of the Pacific as well. Of course, Australia just touching the Pacific Ocean. It's uh, Kalafi Moala, our man in Tonga, who is with us right now. Morena Kalafi, how are you? 
Good, thank you. Good morning. Now, good morning to you. Now, um, Tropical Cyclone Kevin, I know there was a bit of concern with what it might do. Seems like a bit of a sigh of relief for Tonga, but not probably over towards Vanuatu way. Yes, Tonga is uh, breathing uh, relief after Tropical Cyclone Kevin uh, moved on. There were tailwinds and some heavy rain over the weekend, but it has moved completely out of Tongan waters. And the National Emergency Management Office in Tonga reported uh, no damage of any kind, uh, despite the fact that residents of Tongatapu were being under threat with this uh, Category 3 cyclone for two days. Uh, the cyclone season, of course, in Tonga, as well as other island neighbors, start in December and run through March. Manuatu, of course, was not so lucky with both Cyclone Judy and Cyclone Kevin causing some very serious damage in some of the islands. Yeah, it was very, very sad to see um, that footage of Vila looking like that. Let's have a look to another big story. So Japan, they're planning to dump nuclear waste into the Pacific Ocean, but it's facing growing opposition, isn't it? That's correct. The Pacific member nations uh, of the forum... Uh, and especially Fiji and Papua New Guinea are alarmed at Japan's plan to release more than 1.3 million tons of radioactive wastewater into the Pacific. And uh, a question that has, that has been asked is that uh, if the advanced liquid processing system treated water is so safe, why not reuse it in Japan for alternative purposes in manufacturing and agriculture for incidents. Hmm. The acting Prime Minister of Fiji, Manoa Kamikamita, uh, made a comment last week in reference to Japan's plan. He also says that the Pacific Islands Forum have established an independent plan of scientific experts to advise them. And he says that they have been able to reach this, not the same conclusion as the Japanese government. He also says that the health of the Pacific Ocean is vitally important, of course, to us. A source of livelihood to many, it holds the only healthy stock of tuna in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it forms a key part of the Pacific Islands Forum uh, 2050 strategy. He emphasized the preservation, protection, and security of the ocean and our people. And of course, from Papua New Guinea, the Minister of Fisheries and Marine Life, Honorable Jelta Wong, also expressed great concern. He says that Japan should understand the reserve from the Pacific nations since they were the nation that experienced firsthand Hiroshima and Nagasaki nuclear bombs and should know the risks of radiation. And on the other hand, of course, you've got the Micronesian nations uh, that have been united in the, in their deference uh, to Japan's proposed plan. Yeah. Also, too, um, I, I see it's flu season there in Tonga. And there's already, there already been some deaths, haven't there? Yes, uh, three children uh, ex- actually uh, that have uh, reportedly died from the flu in Tonga over the weekend. The children were seriously ill and died from influenza and pneumonia. This has been confirmed from the uh, Viola Hospital in Nukalofa. There's been a warning from the Ministry of Health that the flu is spreading in Tonga. Uh, Young children and uh, those that are aged 
uh, being the most vulnerable. Uh, that uh, There were classes at some schools this week that have been cancelled uh, in the schools due to many students being taken ill. And it is reported as a form of pneumonia. Symptoms like coughing, shortness of breath, fatigue, fever, nausea, and vomiting. And the ministry reported that it will take about three to five days for people to recover. Oh, that's sad to hear about the deaths. Uh, Kalafi, thank you very much for your time. There he is with us live out of Tonga, up early to chat to us. Kalafi Moala. 5.18 here at uh, First Up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarere. And rounding out our hat-trick of international correspondence, it's Alex Baird, who's freshly uh, with us uh, from Doha. Kia ora, how are you in Doha? Morning, Nathan. Well, I wish I could have competed with some camel noises or something like that in the background, but alas, I think you have to do with the rooster. I know, how authentic. That was so good. That's the best the rooster's <laughs> been uh, with Kalafi. I think uh, 10 we, we got there of the rooster getting in there, so he's early and this is good. We just heard about the, um, uh, obviously the flu uh, going around in Tonga, which is horrible too. Tell me about this, this wave of illness in a number of Iranian schoolgirls since November and the thought that it could possibly be poisoning? Yeah, so dozens of schools across Iran have been affected by what they're saying. It's an unexplained illness with more than 1,000 girls affected. It's widely believed that this is um, some type of poisoning. Um, Some politicians have suggested that the girls could have been targeted by hardline Islamist groups who are opposed to girls' education. And this all comes off the back of um, these months and months Months and months of protests across Iran following the death of Masa Armeni at the hands of the morality police. Um, you'd really seen this huge uprising um, in almost every single one of Iran's provinces um, calling for more rights for women, calling for an end to the deaths of women at the hands of the so-called morality police. And now you're starting to see there's a bit of a bit of backlash from some hardline groups. Now the Ayatollah of Iran has said that you know this is unacceptable. That whoever's doing this will be uh, will suffer the the most severe of punishments. But pretty awful stuff. We've been seeing these videos coming out of of girls coughing, uh, um, being sick, saying that they don't want to die, and all they're doing is being in school. Uh, so hopefully they find out who's behind this. But another awful turn of events in Iran, which is already for months on end, being experiencing some very intense upheaval. Yeah. Um, must be, I, I don't know how Turkey can think about elections with what's going on, but uh, Turkey does have elections coming up. I think it's May. Who's this challenger to Turkey's President Erdogan? Yeah, so before the earthquake um, last month, this had been a huge focus of, of, of life in Turkey that there were these elections coming up and these really pivotal elections because it was seen as the first time since he was elected that President Recep Tayyip Erdogan was really going to see a pretty um, intense challenge to his power, that this could have been the election that took him down. So the, the, the main opposition parties, um, the, there is a, a group of op- opposition parties who have banded together and said that a man called Kemal Kilic Darolu will be the man to lead them into the election. Now, it'll be interesting because the polls are suggesting that this is, again, going to still be an incredibly tight race. You often see 
um, you know, you, we've seen in New Zealand after um, after the the terror attacks in Christchurch after COVID that Jacinda Ardern, for instance, was able to um, really ride on a wave of popular support. But it seems like the opposite is actually happening in Turkey after two decades of fairly authoritarian rule from um, from President Erdogan, uh, an economic crisis before the earthquake and errors during the handling of the earthquake have made him extremely vulnerable. Now, this uh, new figure who, who's risen to, to um, really be his primary uh, opposition candidate, um, he has pledged to really kind of pull apart a lot of what Erdogan has done um, it's a pretty radical, different vision um, where Erdogan had really been kind of dismantling some of the democratic uh, democratic apparatus of Turkey. He's promising to to go back and, and bring it back to Turkey and re-implement some of the really hardline secular approaches that had kind of defined Turkey's political landscape for decades. So I think what you're seeing here is the potential that we really could see some political change in Turkey. And I think, for instance, you would expect, as I said, the, the earthquake to have helped him. I think it's actually had the opposite effect. Hmm. Uh, people seeing one thing's leaders seeing another. Racial attacks, a number of racial attacks in Tunisia, but the country's leader says, no, they're not. It's, he's rejected accusations of racism. Where do we stand on this now? Yeah, so this is again awful stuff. Qais Said, uh, the another authoritarian ruler <laughs> in this part of the world, and he's been um, really pushing it further and further down this, just um, disbanding parliament, really um, kind of again um, taking apart a lot of the democratic infrastructure of Tunisia. Um, now, just last month, he had said that sub Saharan Africans in uh, in Tunisia, had been uh, mounting a plan to change the demogra- change the demographics of Tunisia. He, he said that there was a um, conspiracy. He had uh, he'd been making a number of racist comments against refugees, and this had really spiraled out and caused a number of racial attacks against sub-Saharan migrants throughout Tunisia. There have been um, protests and whatnot, and now he's come out and said oh no, um, you know, I wasn't making any racist hate speech. I wasn't doing anything of the sort, despite the fact that he obviously was. The African Union has issued a statement urging Tunisia to refrain from hate speech. The, um, the, World, Bank, uh, the World Bank has, you know, said you've got to watch it. Um, really interesting here because you've also had at the same time, again, months and months and months of protests against him against what he's doing and people saying, hey, we want you out. Yet he's still making um, pretty awful statements and and still doing what he does best, which seems to be deconstructing the democratic apparatus of Tunisia while also making racist comments that are are flipping out and having a real impact on people living in Tunisia. Yeah. Look, I'll tell you, like the cockerel, but apart from that, Alex Baird, wonderful report. Thank you very much. Out of Doha, uh, that's our man, Alex.
message here as well. Loving the rooster correspondent trying to crow over the top of the human correspondent from Tonga. Yeah, we bring it all to you. Uh, it's a kaleidoscope of the human experience is first up. 25 past five, Nathan Rarita here at first up. Tons to come between now and the end of the programme. We're in Tolaga Bay. We're here from the Green Party's co-leader. This week on Trade Me, a super fancy Porsche, a flight simulator and a huge number of auctions raising money for Cyclone Gabrielle victims and the cleanup. And Trade Me's Ruby Topsan explained it all to first up producer Jeremy Parkinson. Yes, another fabulous listing raising money for the cleanup effort following Cyclone Gabrielle, of course. This one getting more attention than most. We've seen some fabulous rugby jersey listings already that have raised a really stunning amount of money but this one is already sitting at four thousand one hundred and twenty dollars and it doesn't close for another couple of days thursday tomorrow at lunchtime so one to set an alarm for on your lunch break perhaps if it's of interest but yeah 139 watch lists 177 bids it's really getting a lot of attention and it's it's no surprise it's a really special match Jersey. Well, it's actually it's a man of the match jerseys signed by the playing um, 23 from round one of the Super Rugby Pacific 2023 competition. So if that piques your interest, then jump on site and have a look. Framing can also be arranged, this one, for an additional cost. Yeah, so at uh, 4,120 at the moment, that could double in the next two days. Who knows? We are always blown away with how much these sorts of listings sell for and with such a wonderful cause behind this one, we hope it doubles or more. And blown away will be my brother when he sees the price of this Porsche that's up for grabs on Trade Me this week. This is a classic Porsche 356, a 1950s model. My brother's abs, that's an actually 1962 Porsche uh, 356B T6, asking price of $350,000. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, it's quite something, isn't it? And it's got history to match there. That it's really laid out, but it talks about its history and then arriving in New Zealand. It was first delivered to Porsche by the UK importer AFM in 1962, used to promote sales of the brand, and then it was sold to its first private owner in December of that same year. And then by 1976, it was parked up and unused and then moved all the way over to New Zealand um, where, when the owner moved over here too. So it's it's got a real story there, and it's but it's freshly rebuilt with the original engine, but it's looking in fabulous condition, isn't it, over all that paint and, and all of the finishing there is looking gorgeous. And you hit the nail on the head there with the original engine because these cars really aren't worth much anything like this without you know the original engine the original parts matching numbers all that kind of carry on and this is a an absolutely immaculate example and uh, i'll buy it for my brother for one lotto tomorrow <laughs> we'll see how much this one goes for it will be on many a watch list i'm sure of that yeah, it's an amazing car uh, and uh, last up today on trade me so you might not be able to afford a boeing 777 but a flight mm-hmm. simulator at only $39,000, if that's your bag, there's one for sale out of Queenstown. There is, and it's for any budding pilots or perhaps a pilot that might want to practice the 777 flight skills, flying skills. Interestingly for this one, you would have to then purchase the uh, license in order to be able to upgrade to the latest version of the software as well. So worth noting there, to be confirmed how much that license costs on top of that 39000 But yeah, 15 watch lists. It looks like a lot of fun, doesn't it? It's got all the um, things that you might need to practice and 
I think this is going to find a comfortable new home somewhere. It's just a probably a matter of having space for it. Well, actually, the starting price is 39000 The reserve hasn't been met yet, so who knows how much this would be going for and how much they actually want for it. <laughs> it's quite a strange thing to see. Yeah, and then obviously the added cost of transporting it from Queenstown on top of, uh, ironically, on a plane, I guess, as well as that licence fee. So it could work out to be quite a costly purchase for somebody, but I'm sure that, as you say, if that's your bag, it's worth it to someone. That was Ruby Topsend from Trade Me. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. It's the 8th of March. Happy 39th birthday to you, Ross Taylor. Happy birthday. On this day in 1817, the New York Stock Exchange was founded. In 1950, the Volkswagen Type 2 says here, known officially as the Transporter, Combi, okay, or Micro Bus, or informally as the Bus, Camper, or the Bully. A Ford Control light commercial vehicle introduced in 1950 by the German automaker Volkswagen as its second car model, following Volkswagen's first model, the Type 1, the Beetle. There you go. So there you go, yeah, the Combi van. This day in 1950. Wave if you see a Combi today. The wave back. And this day in 1970, Simon, Garfun- uh, Simon and Garfunkel's uh, album Bridge Over Troubled Waters began a 10-week run at the top of the Billboard Top 200. Some wild nights there. Oh, this day in 1979, Phillips demonstrated this plastic thing and everyone went, what is that? There's music coming out of it. What is that? And they went, it's a compact disc. And the first one was manufactured three years later. Let's have a look at uh, some movies out on this day today. This is a big release week in movie world. This day in 1960, the movie Psycho came out, of course, the story of Marion Crane and her visit there to the Bates Motel. Made for 806000 it made $50 million. That went okay. This day in 1996, a film that's always in my top five. I love it. I'm always delighted by it. It won two Oscars. It's called Fargo. Uh, the story of Marge Gunderson, the police chief there by the Coens. And on this day in 2019... Uh, the first female-led superhero movie to gross over $1 billion, Captain Marvel, came out on this day in 2019, featuring Brie Larson in the title role, uh, and of course Goose the Cat, but uh, Goose was played by four other cats. The cat actors were Reggie, Gonzo, Archie and Rizzo. There you are, and that's uh, all your stuff you need to know about the 8th of March. It's uh, time now to talk about the business with Anand Zaki. Kia ora, Anand, how are you? Morena, very well, thank you. Good, what do you got for me today? Have you got a rooster? Uh, our, uh, our man in Tonga, he had a rooster in the back of his report. And, well, uh, that's th- got to be a first on yeah, First Up. Yeah, yeah, well, the First Up audience love it. So uh, you, you talk and we'll try and find you a rooster. Tell me tell what's happening in the world today. Uh, look, one of the things I want to touch on, um, as company directors, um, you know, we're now at a time where uh, climate change issues are well documented and company directors are being told to basically get down to the serious business of uh, guiding their companies to adopt climate policies. Um, and it's not just to reduce emissions to be net carbon zero by 2050, but uh, also be prepared for disclosures, which uh, for big firms uh, will be required by law. And uh, this is coming from the chair of the Institute of Directors, Dame Therese Walsh. 
Uh, she also heads the boards of Air New Zealand and ASB. And she says directors uh, who don't meet the uh, disclosure standards, uh, she's reminding everyone basically, could face penalties of up to $5 million and even five years jail uh, under the Climate Disclosures Act. So she's saying, yeah, tough penalties. uh, And she's saying that directors don't just need to uh, hold their executive leadership to account, uh, but also need to work together with other companies, agencies and government so basically just uh, get serious and just get on with it uh, seems to be the message. Will they? Well, you'd hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's after, that, the... after a five-year jail, five years jail being uh, branded about. Yeah, you hope so. You still don't find the whole, yeah, well, look, you know, I mean, now's not the time. We'll leave it to the next next board or next management. That seems to be, that's pretty much what's happened for the last few decades in many places, isn't it? And, and that's how we find ourselves where we are. But I guess the five years jail, hopefully that will make action happen right now. Well, let's see. Let's see how it goes. Look, I'm always a bit of a skeptic. Uh, mm. Leave it to the next generation, isn't it? That's been the case, isn't it? Um, yes. <laughs> over the past few years. Yeah. All right. Hey, uh, thank you very much. You can hear more from the business team this morning on Morning Report at 10 to 7. Your New Zealand dollar buys you things. It buys you the following other currencies. It buys you 61.55 US cents, 93.01 Australian cents, 58.05 Euro cents, 51.67 British pence, 4.29 yuan, 84.13 Japanese yen and exactly one New Zealand dollar. Well, roading contractors will this morning make a call on whether one of the last major roads in and out of Coromandel can reopen after a large part of it caved in. One lane on State Highway 25 between Whangamata and Hikawai was open for essential travel yesterday before being closed at 6 o'clock last night to allow engineers to assess the damage and carry out repairs. If it can't open, it will be another huge blow to the already isolated community. Leonard Powell reports. Looking at the pictures of the huge expanding slip north of Opoturi on State Highway 25, some locals fear it'll end up like State Highway 25A, cutting them off. Here's Linda Grant from Fitianga's Mercury Bay Business Association. From my understanding, they are trying to widen the road, so they're digging into the edge of the cliff edge and to widen that to give it a safer path, but it's a fairly serious underdrop. Um, so I can't imagine that there'll be any heavy vehicles allowed on that for some time. If it can't reopen, it'll be disastrous for the Coromandel. Just a business that I have myself, we had to get to um, a poetry yesterday. So we had to have someone that drove right round the top. Or actually, they came across the 309 because they're on a four-wheel drive, so that's a metal road and often only one lane in places. So they came across there and then met some, a tradesperson in Kopu, and then drove to Pairo, Waihi, Whangamata. Um, so that was a whole day's journey. So, you know, that's quite a cost to a business, and that's something that's going to happen more often. Um, you know, a lot of people travel between for work right around the peninsula. Eve Roper is the manager of the Information Centre in Tairua. She says the continued slips on State Highway 25 is worrying for business. A lot of the businesses are just holding their breath, you could say. Restaurants, the few that we have, are really struggling. If, if you've paid a lot of money to, say, get accommodation for your staff or you're, you're helping your staff, keeping your restaurants open and cafes open, um, it's difficult if you've not got any access for your staff to get through to you. If they're not living in Tyrur, you can't run a business.
um, if you've got your staff that are able to come into work, um, but there's nobody visiting, then you're, you're overpaying more than you're getting in. Philippa Evans is the senior sales manager for the Tairua Harcourt's office, which is around 25 kilometres from the new Opotori slip. She says limited road access and bad weather has hampered home inspections. Real estate usually... February, March are our busiest month. Everyone's had a great holiday and have decided this is the place to be. But of course, with the bad weather and the road closures, those people are just simply aren't coming back to buy a slice of paradise in Tyrua. But there's been four sales in Tyrua in total for all the agencies this year, and usually there would be three times that. Miss Evans says the situation impacts young and old. I do have a lot of concern for, for people in Tyrone, the people that, if they've got health issues or older, now going to hospital is at least two hours away. I do worry about the teenage kids that are at high school because my son goes to Whangamatai Area School and he can't go to school. Linda Grant from the Mercury Bay Business Association says that long term, there's going to need to be a massive investment in the Coromandel's roads. Everybody on the peninsula believes that we don't want to fix up. We'd rather have um, you know, a short-term pain for a long-term gain and get the infrastructure to be solid and this not to happen again. But back in Tairua, Philippa Evans has her fingers crossed. I am optimistic because when we had the COVID lockdown, it was everyone predicted doom and gloom and it um, turned out to be the busiest period for us. So... I am optimistic and I keep telling myself that um, it's making Tyra that little bit more exclusive because it's a long road round and you have to travel that extra mile if you want to come visit us. And it's worth it. Eighteen to six, Nathan Rarity here at First Up in RNZ National. So uh, between now and the end of the program, we will be in Tolaga Bay, and we will also speak to the Minister for Climate Change, uh, James Shaw. So the uh, an interesting old morning still to come. <laughs> The professionals of Morning Report are here after 6 o'clock. Corin Dan to uh, give us a bit of a, a sampler, I should say, of uh, what is coming on. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. Yourself? Pretty good. Just thinking about the sampler box, I mean, it was, that was a good traditional mm. Christmas thing, wasn't it? The yeah, Hey, we've bought a sampler box. I just always like the one with hundreds and thousands on it, the pink one. Oh, is that the one you went for straight away? Absolutely, yeah. every time. Surprisingly Pretty. good biscuit. Cameo creams always left, but yet oh, yeah. still always a classic. No, always absolutely a classic. classic. Yeah, Cameo yeah. creams, my grandma yeah. liked those. Uh, we've got a busy show this morning. Yes. Uh, Auckland Hospital are uh, busy. They are diverting ambulances, I think, on Monday. They did. Uh, this is to other hospitals because of... Uh, uh, and they had to open an overflow zone. So this is, uh, I guess, a... Hopefully, uh, not going to be repeated, but the concern, I guess, is that uh, we're we not even in winter yet, mm. uh, and they're already under extreme pressure. So we'll have more on that. Uh, taxpayers still paying for the merger of RNZ, TVNZ, which I'm pretty sure is off. About time um, someone spoke about that. <laughs> yes, so there's, uh, but it's a wrap-up uh, sort of uh, thing. Uh, the boards are wrapping up, but uh, the National yep. Party is not happy about that, and they are criticising the fact that there was still some money spent despite the merger now being off. Uh, and we'll have more on the census, how that is going. Uh, oh, yeah. Get your census done last night, did you? No, we see. I, we, we filled ours out a few days early, mm-hmm. and then we sent it. And I said to my wife, "Now I've got to not die between now and census night, or have filed false information." You know, 
Well, this is right. Managed I was not to. <laughs> I was exp- explaining to one of my uh, sons that, that he, technically he can put down uh, the, the, that he is a member of the Jedi faith. Because, <laughs> yeah, that's all. Oh, that's because, right. Because there was somebody pushed for it a yes. few years back, and you can be a, a follower of the Jedi. Yeah, why not? Order, if you want. Yeah, just be true to the... <laughs> You've got the force. Yeah, yeah, thank you, yeah. Just be true to the force. That's what you do. Yeah. All right, well, thank you very much, sir. Very the, good. Uh, Corindan and Guy on Espinar are up after six o'clock. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that one. But did you put anything in lightning yet in there? Yeah, anyway. Uh, and you survey uh, your census forms that are snow. To another part of the country now, having to rebuild after Cyclone Gabrielle. So many places, of course, Tairawhiti, one of those. The staff at Te Whare Haora or Te Aitanga o Hoiti in Tolaga Bay have had to become jacks of all trades now, helping with everything, healthcare needs, finances, housing, food, repairs. Uh, also getting up really early to have a chat to some guy on the radio, but Lena Kirikiri has uh, set in to do that. We thank you very much for that, <coughs> Chief Chief Executive, so so just tell us about about those families uh, who were displaced uh, by the cyclone there, Rina. Uh, kia ora. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yes, our families, our whanau and community here in Uauatolaga Bay are really resilient. So we've um, we've been working, actually interweaving two, two modes at the moment. That is the recovery rebuild and rebuilding, but also preparedness. So... We've just got on with the do. We're doing the do to do what we need to do. <laughs> but it's hard to do. I mean, like you know, you know, you're you're being very. Uh, what's the word? You know, I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit here. It's hard. So tell me, what's what's the process involved in securing them housing, particularly when so much is being you know destroyed around you? So yes, firstly, it is hard. It is really hard because we see these families. They've lost everything, um, and we. we we're getting as much help as we can. We know the whole community and the district of Tairawhiti is under pressure and really struggling with this, so it is hard. But we have to, you know, we have to work through that because our families want to get through, um, you know, to get into their homes and rebuild their homes. Yeah. Um, so it's the clean-up, the silt removal, that's one of the really hardest things is um, waiting for a reassessment. And we, we know that everybody's... Um, working hard around that. So communities are and family groups are working together. They're getting outside, you know, help from other organisations and other communities from Aotearoa and their workplaces to actually bring in their own um, machinery, their own tools, do the hard works to clean that silt so they can actually start um, rebuilding um, and going through their assessment process. I've seen because that quite they a, need to get back into their homes. Yeah, I've seen that quite a bit. Uh, I could have made down in Hastings. I noticed he was doing that whole, look, we've helped dig out. Where does the silt go? Like, where do we actually put it? It's a tough one now. Like, where do you put it? There's, what, about, what about, I'm just wondering this for you, what's support been like from central or local government? Have you heard much at all? Um, it's really tough. And, and um We've, we're struggling with, you know, we've been struggling with communications here, you know, um, yeah. our Uawa Civil Defence through to Tairawhiti because we lost connectivity. We still, we have connectivity now, but some whānau do not have comms, so they come in to us to to, to reach out to get comms. Um, with the Gisborne um, District Council, um, it is frustrating for families, so we've offered families to come to us and we'll be a connect. Uh, my, many of our staff do know 
um, key points, key connection points in the council. So just trying to connect p- people, our community, with the right people so we can get some some cons working. Um, for example, this from Melbourne, there is nowhere to put the silt. Our mm. refusal, our, our dump is, you know, over overflowing. So we're trying to organise with the council to actually have key times for them to, to remove that silt. At the same time, it's hard for families because they don't have the big machinery to do that. And when you're trying to clean out, where do you put it? Yeah, and it's hard and, and you're always worried, like, please, can we just get my house done? It's tough when you're trying yes. to do everyone's. Now, as well, um, north of you, Tokamaru Bay, uh, I think they're still a bit cut off from you guys. So have you, are you able to keep in touch with them somehow? Like, how are they getting on there? Uh, yes, they are still cut off. I, um, They're just as resilient as we are. They have a great team in Tokamaru Bay that are working hard to support each other. I, I believe they have a convoy. They organise convoys with the civil defence coming into town. There are some helicopter um, drop-offs for medical, urgent medical supplies um, uh, through the airport, things like that. We do connect, keep connected through key people, um, through the civil defence, and also key key friends and whānau who, who we're personally connected to, just to check in and make sure they're okay as well. Yeah. You know, winter is coming. Tell me, we, as you have a look at the damage and what's done, uh, are you worried about winter coming soon? We're worried every day because we know that this is, is going to happen again. We've been dealing with this um, this kind of um, preparation, recovery and, and flooding, cyclone relief for some years now. So we're worried every every sense of rain that is coming ahead we're worried about it so it's for us now is building more resilience and preparedness for our families in our community because to be honest we don't know when or if we'll get help so we have to find our own solution on how to get by well, Rena, thank you very much for your time uh, this morning there that's uh, the latest there oh my goodness me that's very sad latest there at Atolaga Bay Well, uh, as we talk about cleanups and what have you, the Prime Minister has promised a change of focus on transport uh, that uh, won't compromise action on climate change. That's what he's promised. Uh, but thanks to Cyclone Gabrielle, of course, emissions reduction will no longer be at the top of the transport priority. Initially, the government had wanted to invest nearly $2 billion a year towards bus and bike lanes, but now the focus has switched to an emergency-style plan to repair roads devastated in the recent storms. The Green Party has not welcomed the government's U-turn. Co-leader James Shaw joins me now. James, thank you very much uh, for being up early to have a chat with us here at First Up. Just wondering about there, I can understand your, your position, but surely the money has to go to fixing roads now, doesn't it? Well, it, it certainly has to go into um, you know making sure that uh, the areas that have been affected are able to um, get you know, get those transport links open again. Um, the thing that's been presented to uh, in the media has been as a false choice uh, between climate action on one hand uh, and repairing roads on the other. Um, and actually, if you watch the encounter yesterday in Parliament between uh, the Minister of Transport um, and uh, Simeon Brown, um, there, there was a lot, I think, that was mischaracterised or, or that Simeon was either lying uh, or didn't understand about what the uh, what those transport statements were, were trying to say, which essentially was uh, in, in the draft uh, that uh, if we're going to dig up a road, how about we do it uh, once rather than twice? 
um, rather than saying that we were going to um, deprioritize road maintenance for um, you know cycle lanes or, or bus lanes. Mm. I think all of us have had plenty of experience in uh, you know roads being dug up for one purpose and then um, fixed up, and then only about a month later someone coming along and doing it again, which does seem colossally wasteful. Yeah. So when you look at it, what what ideally would you like to have heard then that would be, you know, great for you when you go, yes, that suits now, but also it suits our future plan? Well, uh, as we know, you know, we do need to decarbonise the transport sector. It is the one sector of our economy where um, emissions have been growing really out of control uh, for uh, some years now. Um, and, uh, you know, other sectors have been been broadly stable. Uh, so, you know, I, and I think Michael Ward understands this. Um, we do need to ensure that we've got a transport system which gives people options. Uh, so in many parts of the country, you are kind of stuck uh, with only one mode of transport and actually people need to have have other modes available to them as well and they need to be fast and convenient and cheap otherwise they won't use them yeah um so let's does, does this at all affect the possibility of the green party looking to form a coalition with labor Oh, well, what we've said is for all political parties that this year, of all years, especially given the experience that we've had as a country over the last seven weeks of these horrendous floods in Auckland and Taitokara, followed on very short order by Cyclone Gabriel, massive damage uh, in Hawke's Bay uh, and Upper End, um, Gisborne and so on, that that actually this is the year that we do need to double down uh, on climate change. We'll be challenging all parties to, to do that at the election. Now, uh, you are also Minister of Statistics, which scares me because I ran away from maths. That's why I do a talking (laughs) job. Uh, But yesterday, of course, was Census Day. Now, a lot of people might have slipped through because, you know, they're obviously dealing with silt or whatever displaced by the floods. How do you think this will impact the, the findings? Well, I just need to correct you. I'm actually not the Minister of Statistics. I oh. was oh, uh, in our last term. That's right. Yes. And, and um, you know, the previous government had made such a hash of the census then. I spent quite a lot of that term uh, <laughs> fixing the damage and getting ready, ready for this one. Um, look, th- there will obviously be an impact, and, and um, the team at Census and StatsNZ have said uh, that they're extending the deadline in uh, affected areas to make sure that people are able to uh, access that. And um, I'm really glad that they've done that because it is really important that everybody counts. It does. Well, um, I filled out my census form. I was very good, and I know that Harry Styles did uh, as well, apparently, last night in the concert, and he did. So, look, James, thank you very much for your time. There is a Green Party uh, co-leader, James Shaw, and that wraps up our programme for this morning that took us all around the world uh, today. But, yeah, just, um, oh boy, isn't it sad when you hear about communities, for example, like Tolaga, who are having to uh, try and sort it out themselves, and so many New Zealanders around this great nation are doing so in many of the areas too and I think it just keeps coming up a lot of people going please don't forget us and we're not forgetting you uh, all around the nation there it's just horrible uh, what's happened to you anyway uh, thank you very much today we went to uh, the Middle East we went to Australia uh, we found out that today is the uh, birthday of the combi van but nothing was as popular as our correspondent in Tonga Mwala Kalafi uh, Kalafi Mwala sorry with his rooster uh, thank you very much download first up the podcast uh, we're back in your ears ah, poor, poor. take it away rooster go for it